Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Network. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and I am joined by another podcast host, Alex Bernardo, the Protestant Libertarian Podcast, which is also part of the Christians for Liberty Network. And we are going to talk about, and hopefully this will be a feature, probably quarterly, that we will talk about what we're reading and what's on our shelf. And you might say, Alex, we might talk about what we've yet to read because we might have (laughs) the same books on our shelves that we haven't got to yet. So uh, anyway, thanks for joining me for this episode to chat. Yeah. Hey, man, I really appreciate having me back on. It's going to be a great conversation. So I am always interested in what people are reading. And one of the benefits of having this podcast network is that you and I are in a signal group chat, and we often get to share with each other, with everyone, what we're reading, what we're listening to, podcast episodes, (laughs) also troubleshooting our internal systems together. (laughs) (laughs) But I love hearing what other people are reading and what they're listening to and things like that. And so I wanted to just share With our listeners, you know, the two of us, we read different things, but we also read some things that have some overlap in either topical content or we actually, like last week, we read the same book, which we might talk about a little bit. Yeah. And I don't want to just sit down by myself and tell everybody what I'm reading because it may not be as interesting as if the two of us did it. So we're going to try this one out. But I do want to start a little bit with not just like, hey, let's just jump into what we're reading. I want to talk about our approaches to reading. I want to ask you, do you read on Kindle? Do you read on physical book? Do you ever do audiobooks, that kind of thing? Is there a mixture? I'll let you go first, and then I can share what I do. Oh, all right, cool. Well, until I started this podcast back in the spring of 2022, I was less technologically advanced than my parents, who are baby boomers. So if that, if that tells you anything, uh, I do not read on Kindle. I'm an old school. I got to have the hard book in front of me. I just prefer to read. That. It just feels better that way, you know? I just could never get into it on Kindle. What about you? What about audiobook? Do you ever do any of that? One of the people that I've had on my show a couple of times, Lori Calhoun, she gave me a copy of one of her books on audiobook for free, which is very nice. We kill because we can. It's a great book on drone warfare. And so I've been listening through that, but I just prefer the way that my mind works. I have to, as I'm reading through something, especially if it's something that I'm really interested in, I have to be able to underline and write notes in the margins and things yep, like that. Yep. And that's just helpful. Just uh, the best way to help me retain that information as I'm reading it. Yeah. Well, I don't really have a system or I I should say I haven't comprehended what system I have for whether or not I read something on Kindle, audiobook or a physical book, because I actually do all three and it just depends on the book. And I, I just can't discern what it is that makes me want to do that. I think and I will say that like last year I read 60 books or listened to 60 books total. Right. Yeah. And I would say about half of them are audiobooks. And the reason, part of the reason for that is I do a lot of things around the house with my hands, whether it's washing the dishes, making a meal, you know, the past couple of years we've been doing some work on our house, like construction related work and, you know, just sort of handiwork, that kind of stuff. And I tell you what, Alex, my favorite invention almost of all time are AirPods. Just 12 years ago, I did some remodeling in our house and I had to use like actual wired headphones (laughs) and I listened to Atlas Shrugged that way. Oh, wow. So when I, I actually have memories of when I was hearing certain parts of Atlas Shrugged in my basement. In fact, what's now my office that I'm in here right now, 
I just remember that uh, while I'm, you know, putting up studs on concrete walls and, and learning how to do all that, I'm listening to these headphones and they're wired and it was just a terrible experience. But anyway, I listen to audiobooks when I can listen to material that I don't need to highlight, that I don't need to sort of, I wouldn't say memorize, I don't really memorize much anymore, but like I don't, I don't feel like I need to sit and dwell on it. And I feel like I can just listen to it and be like, okay, I got the information. I don't, it's not something I need to repeat, or I already kind of know what to repeat if I need to, like if I need to, you know, like a statistic or something like that. Or if it's just simply a story that I wouldn't sit down and read. So for example, a few years ago, I listened to the audiobook presentation of The Epic of Gilgamesh. Oh yeah. I, I'm not going to sit down and read that, right? It was like three and a half hours. I just was not going to sit down and read it. And so I was like, you know what? I'll listen to this while I do something else. And so I will I will often read audiobooks uh, or l read books via audiobook like that. I have an Audible subscription, so I'm kind of committed to a certain, you know, number of books every year in terms of like what I spend money on. So of course then I right. you know, <laughs> choose choose what they are and I listen to them. So that's the audiobook thing. What's really kind of interesting for me is I do have a Kindle, which I love. It's great to travel with. But what I've learned over the years is that if I buy something on Kindle, it is often cheaper than buying it on paperback or hardcover. And not just because it's digital, like, you know, the difference between $9.99 and $14.99, but more like, oh, it's on sale for $2.99 yeah. for this weekend only. And so I snatch it up and it sits in my Kindle shelf, right? On my virtual Kindle shelf and I don't really touch it. And so what ends up happening is these books don't get read. But if I buy a physical book, it sits there and it stares at me and it says, Doug, you need to read me <laughs> instead of on my Kindle. So a lot of times now I'm realizing that with my Kindle is one of two reasons. I really want to read it right now because either it's on sale or it's a topic that I want to read and it just happens to be on sale, right? Like a book that I'm like, oh, I really got to read that right now because I'm, you know, dealing with this topic. I'm conversing with people about it and all that. And so I'll, I'll get it and read it on Kindle. Or if I'm doing a podcast prep, and I know that I'm going to want to highlight and then just like go to my computer because they synchronize. Oh, okay. And go to my computer and just sort of be like, okay, I can take notes based on this. And that's going to depend because I will often, you know, they're not going to, the publisher doesn't send you free Kindle books. They send you free physical books. So it's not always the, the case for a publisher when they send me books for review or for interviews that I get to do this. But that's another reason that I'll read on Kindle. And so that that's how I do it. But by and large, I do prefer the physical book. The only reason that I just, I wish I could switch to Kindle just completely and maybe they can add a like paper smell to the next Kindle or something <laughs> is the, the biggest reason is I am very tactile in the way that I remember things. Like I will know, and I'm sure you're the same way, which side of the page and sort of maybe one yes. third of the way through the book, did I highlight that thing? Yes. Right. Or, oh, the author spoke about justification by faith. And I don't know what page it was on. I don't know what the wording was, but I know I underlined it and put a star in the margin or wrote something. Yeah. Right. And so you can't quite do that with Kindle. I think there's a new Kindle coming out or is out that it sort of lets you do that kind of thing. But anyway, that's my approach. Do you highlight or do you use a pen? I, I prefer to use a pen. I used to have a system where I would do both. And so some of the books Ooh. that I've had for like 10 or 12 years, I would highlight some and then also have a pen if I wanted to write in the margins. But I, I found over the last couple of years, it's just easier if I, I use a pen. I can mm. put some things in brackets. I can underline some uh, things that I find really important. And then I can always take notes. So that's kind of the most helpful way for me. And I have this problem where like, I, you know, I, kind of like what you were saying, I'll be doing the dishes or something like that. Yeah. And I'll be thinking about something that I read, but I'll, it'll only make a half thought. Like 
I'll be like, oh man, I, I remember in this book, there was this really great idea and I kind of half remember it, but I don't fully remember it. Mm-hmm. And so it's nice to be able to go down to my bookshelf and just kind of pull it off my book and find exactly where yeah. that was and exactly what they said. And it, usually I will have written a note that demonstrates that at one point I did fully understand that idea. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm able to go back and kind of read what I was thinking when I read that for the first time. <laughs> I don't really write in my books too much. I've thought about doing that. I did that as a kid, especially like in my margins of my Bible, that kind of thing. But I don't really do that too much. Up until about three years ago, I would highlight. And here, you want to know something really quirky about me? This is, I'm going to reveal something that um, (laughs) this will end up, I'm sure, if Matt Bellis creates a trivia for some future live episode where he asks questions about hosts, this is going to show up on it. So take notes, guys. I used to highlight my books with a highlighter. And I remember being, Jamin Hubner challenged me. He's like, why would you desecrate your books like that? And I was like, well, what do you do to like notate stuff? He goes, I use a pencil or a pen. And I'm like, well, how's that any different? But he's like, well, you know, it's just a personal preference. Obviously we were, you know, jabbing each other about it. And I told my wife about it and she goes, yeah, I've never understood why you highlight, but here's the quirky thing. Depending on the topic and depending on the cover design, I will pick a different color highlighter. Ah, okay. So like you and I were just talking off air about a book by N.T. Wright, Surprised by Scripture. It's green. I could walk over, I, my shelf is a little bit distance away from my microphone here. I could walk over to that and I'm almost certain I use green highlighter. <laughs> just to keep it consistent. Just to keep it consistent. And actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm pretty sure I did reveal this uh, in a previous episode. All the books that I read about critical race theory, critical theory, racism, race relations, Marxism, what color pen do you think I use? Oh, I, I, I would hope, Doug, that it is red. It is definitely red. Oh, perfect. <laughs> I mean, it's the color of socialism, right? It's the USSR. <laughs> That's exactly it. In <laughs> fact, I actually, the Scott McKnight book that I'm pretty sure is an episode, uh, is going to be the episode after this one. I just interviewed Scott McKnight on Revelation and the book cover was red. Uh, reddish. And I was like, do I really have to use red? Because I've, I've already committed that to be the socialist. Books. Hey, you know, what, what does that tell you? I did. I used red because that's what it was. And what does that tell you about the Republican Party of 2023 that the color that they identify with is red? I think it says a lot about their policy. Platform. Oh, yeah. That's, that's funny. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> do you take notes at the end of chapters? I know a lot of people do that. It depends on the book. So there are some books that I read um, and I'll like I'll annotate and underline and things like that. But I don't I don't need to like know, know all of the information. If it's a really important book for me that where I really want to grasp like every aspect of that author's argument, then I'll write notes at the end of the chapter. And then usually what I'll do for those books is when I'm done with those books, I'll get like a notebook out and I'll go through chapter by chapter and I'll write out all of the notes again on a piece of notebook paper. Mm. And then I'll usually fold that up and put it in the back of the book. That way, if I want to go back and get like a synopsis of the book in two to three pages, I can go back and do that really easily. And again, I'll do that a couple of times a year. Like I said, for like I, I just got done with a book on Augustine a couple of weeks back and it was a really good book and it changed a lot of the perspectives that I had on him. And so because I wanted to make sure that I, I really understood what that author was trying to communicate, I went back and took notes on mm. that book like that. And it's really helpful because then again, it's kind of like you you have those half memories or you kind of half remember what you were reading. You go down and real quick, kind of get a point by point, step by step. All right, this is what the author was trying to communicate. This is what I need to know about this book. I find that really helpful, but it all depends on how serious I'm taking yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Do you have any like uh, reading goals each year or do you just kind of do what you can? 
So I try to hit at least um, 40 a year. So, you know, I was in grad school until like 2019. And so it was really hard for me to read on my own up until then. So I try to hit 40 books a year. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. It just depends on like the size of the book. So like I try to do one like really big book that's over 600 pages every year. I picked Human Action uh, back in the uh, the late summer of last year. And I, I do, I actually have like a, a Microsoft Word document mm -hmm. that I use and it goes from June to May of every year because that's when I graduated grad school and that's when I started keeping track of everything that I was reading. So uh, I okay. do it that way. So yeah. at the end of last summer, which was the beginning of my reading cycle, I chose to read Human Action, which is like 900 pages of technical economics. Brilliant. <laughs> Everyone needs to read it. Ludwig von Mises is a genius, but it took me like a month to read that one book took you a um, month but then you're, oh, you're, yeah. you're acting like that was the burden it was a whole month like i would have thought that you were about to say you just finished it up no no well i was again being a being a teacher one of the great things is you get two months off in the summer and i finished i started it right at the end of july so i can okay. i can put a lot i put a lot of work in in the summer on that stuff so that, that was i see so you do like 35 books in the summer and then five for the rest of the year or something <laughs> yeah it, it definitely is a much slower stream yeah, yeah i deliberately try to pick smaller books during the school year so i can get through them faster oh that makes sense i don't have any goals per se well i try to aim for one a week just as a measuring bar. Yeah. But I feel like, you know what, if I only got to 40, that's okay. 40 is a lot of books. Yeah, it's time. We just read a lot. Oh, well. Yeah. Do you read many books at once or do you kind of do it one at a time? So I know, I know that your strategy is a little bit different than mine. In general, I try to only read one or two books at a time. So like, you know, every now and then just depends on the book. If I'm reading a book that I like, but then I wind up buying a book or if I have to read something for the podcast or if there's just something that really struck my interest, I might take a break and read the second book. Mm -hmm. But in general, I try to only do one at a time just because it helps me focus yeah. on the topic that the author is trying to communicate to me. Yeah. But well, yeah, I know, I know your method's a little bit different, isn't it? Uh, I don't, I wouldn't call it a method, but I do have a rule <laughs> that I am only reading one fiction book at a time. I, about a year and a half ago, I realized that I was reading two fiction books and I got kind of confused <laughs> because they were similar. In, I mean, if they're very different, I guess it might be one thing, but like they were, they were similar enough where I was kind of like, wow, I'm mixing up the subplots in some of these. And it's not like I got like seriously mixed up, but I was thinking about the book and I was like, wait, no, no, no that's the other book. Like I was in the middle of reading one and I'm like, okay, so this happened and that happened. Wait, no, that was the other story. Okay, I got to stop doing this, right? right. So <laughs> I tend to only read one fiction book at a time. I try to always be in a fiction book at a time just to do something other than watch TV or watch a movie as sort of outside this world kind of, you know, escape, yeah. escapism, so to speak. But in terms of like the nonfiction and other books, I mean, I definitely am always reading at least one book for the podcast. People know that I do a lot of interviews on this show, and so they are often entailing a particular book. And I do read all of the books. I've actually kind of, I shouldn't say that anymore. Probably this year is the first year where I'm like, okay, I read like 80% of the book <laughs> and skim through the last bit because I realized that that's all I need to do a good interview, right? Right. But I always feel like if I'm asking a question of a guest and it feels like I didn't read the book that they would be annoyed and I don't want to annoy the guests because yep. they're giving me their time. And so I was like, I'm going to read the book. And so I don't want to ask a stupid question. I got over that fear. And so now I have more time to read an additional 20 books a year or something. So there we go. Yeah. But I'm always reading something for the podcast. I'm always reading something that's just of interest. And I should also note that sometimes I will listen to an audiobook. And I recently did this and we're going to talk about this in a minute about the book. I will listen to an audiobook and think, I need to read that. And sometimes I will read a book and think, I don't want to sit and read this book again because I really enjoyed it, but I want to like listen to it. 
And so I will actually purchase the audiobook of the book so that I can listen to it. And so I've done that just a few times, not a lot, but just a few times because, you know, you're buying the book twice. Right. Right. Which that, that's a little bit of a thing to, that's a pill to swallow, right? You're like, all right, I'm going to buy this book again. And, <laughs> but, you know, it, if it's valuable and the ones that I've chosen are fairly valuable to me. So anyway, that's kind of how I approach it. And I will often have three or four books at a time. And then there'll be this like rush to get them, not rush, but like I'll get them all done in like one week. And I'll be like writing down my list that I just finished five books. And then it'll be like three, four weeks until I get anything else on that list. Right. But right. I've been keeping lists since 2016. And what I do is books finished in that year. So starting January 1st. So if I've started a book and I figured like if it's a cycle, it doesn't really matter what I do, but like I will finish a book. So there might be a book in 2022. We're recording this in 2023. There might be a book in 2022 that I started that's sitting on my shelf that like next month I'll be like, you know what? I'm going to go finish that book. And I'll add that to my list for 2023, even though like in 2023, I might have only read the last hundred pages of 300 right. page book or something. So right. I just keep it on that way. And with respect to the length, like you were talking about picking a book over 600 pages every year, that's really cool. I like that kind of as a goal. I read Greg Boyd's book of like, I think it was 1700 pages back in 2017. Oh, yes. And in order, and I was like, okay, first of all, it's two volumes. So at least counts for two. Right. So I picked a whole bunch of books, not just for this, but like I let myself consider them like as counted like a bunch of books that were like 110 pages. <laughs> right. I was like, this guy, if Greg Boyd's book only counts as one, then this one can count too. Right. You got, you got to compensate for that. I mean, I really do feel like you should give yourself more points for reading it. I read N.T. Wright's Paul and the Faithfulness of God, which is another, I think, 1600, oh, yeah. you know, page yep. two volume. And that one, when you're done, you're, you're exhausted. It's, it's tiring to read I've that read, much. I've read half of the first volume on that one. Yeah. Well, the problem is like with uh, Paul and the Faithfulness, as I had read a lot of N.T. Wright's other work before that book, and I felt like he didn't say anything that was that new. Like uh, he has 200 pages on justification and I had already read his book on justification like two yeah. or three times and it's almost the exact same yeah, argument. Yeah, Still great, but you know. I had the opposite experience with the Greg Boyd books that came out. And by the way, the, I did an episode with Greg on the book Cross Vision, but he came out with uh, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. And then a few months later, he came out with Cross Vision. Now, Crucifixion of the Warrior God was the, actually, N.T. Wright's is the 1700. Greg Boyd's was 13 or 1400 pages. I'm looking at them here and I can tell by the thicknesses. That <laughs> that's what they are. I read Crucifixion of the Warrior God, which is about violence in the Old Testament. And how do we have a Christocentric hermeneutic on what does God look like in the Old Testament with, with those passages in mind? And then I was doing an interview with him on Cross Vision. And the publisher sent me a PDF copy because the physical copy wouldn't arrive in time for me to have the scheduled interview with Greg. And so they sent me a PDF and I, I read it on my iPad. I read it in half a day and it literally was only because I don't read that fast. I really don't. Right. But I'm looking through this and I'm like, okay, I just read this. I just read this in the other book. Right. right. I just read this. I just read this. Oh, oh, okay. That's how he truncates this. Oh, there's a story here. I can, you know, like there was just, it's just so funny. Like, I'm like, I've never read a book so fast, but I, like I read the larger version of the shorter book. Right. And so <laughs> anyway, it was, that was kind of anyway, the opposite experience. All right. Our listeners, if they're still listening to us talk about how we read, <laughs> are wanting Nerds. to know what are we reading right now? If they've, if you've held on this long, thank you for indulging our random ramblings. So Alex, what is on your list of fiction? And honestly, you know, when I asked you about this, I didn't really specify too much about like how far back or whatever. So, I mean, if you want to share what, you know, fiction book really touched you at age 17, that's fine. But uh, anyway, what's on your fiction list? 
Yeah. So I actually don't read like hardly any fiction at all. I, I just, you know, I, I don't know. I just never have really been like a huge, well, I guess I was when I was younger, but I, I haven't read a whole lot of fiction as an adult, but I have a daughter who is eight years old. Yeah. And so we have been going through both the Chronicles of Narnia series with her and the Harry Potter series. And when I was a kid, I think I read like the first four Harry Potter books, but I never, you know, I saw the movies and everything like that. And reading through both of those, I realized that they're both really great series. And I think C.S. Lewis is incredible at like, describing the geography yeah. of Narnia and everything. Like it's, it's amazing how good he is at just creating these physical geographical descriptions of the worlds that he has created in his head. And I think JK Rowling is just an excellent storyteller. Like she does a really good job of bringing in the human emotional element and all of her stories. And it's fun to be able to like read with my daughter at night before we go to bed and actually enjoy the things that she's reading mm. instead of reading, you know, Redfish, Bluefish for the hundredth time. So they're, they're <laughs> bo both very good series. And it's my, my first time reading through the Chronicles of What Narnia. do you have against Dr. Seuss, Alex? Yeah, it's just a little repetitive, you know, it's a, it's a little repetitive. <laughs> so my first time ever reading through the Chronicles of Narnia series, we're on Prince Caspian right now. And I, I really mm. love them. They're, they're great books. So what about you? Well, I was just going to say, you let your kids, you're reading your kids transphobic literature, but we, we, <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, I'm being it's, very sarcastic for anybody yes. not knowing that I'm being really sarcastic. It's, it's just so amazing because I remember that like, you know, another one of the, uh, criticisms that certain like conservative people had against Harry Potter was that, that JK Rowling was like openly, you know, LGBT. Mm -hmm. I guess just LGB affirming. Which, um, yeah, well, sure. actually, and she was LGBT affirming as well. I think the tweet that got her in trouble a couple of years ago is that she said that she yeah. loves trans people and thinks that they should have exactly the same rights as everyone else, but that there needs to be space for biological women. And that's the that's the thing that she said that got yeah, her in trouble. Yeah. And, and now she's like very radically like anti-trans agenda. So yeah, take that for what you will. Yeah, I, I would say for those, I, I you know, I don't want anybody to listen to anything other than our Christians for Liberty podcast, but the Free Press has just released a podcast over the last month and a half called The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. It is a fantastic, I think it's just like six or seven episodes. It is fantastic. It talks about literally everything you just said, but in depth, and it basically is a sort of a cultural snapshot of basically what happened in the 90s with her books and now what's happening with trans movement and yeah, I just don't understand how people can't understand her position as fairly reasonable, even if she's not, right. you know, she's not a she's not a Christian. She doesn't endorse those values. But anyway, that's that's not what we're here to talk about. So, right. <laughs> uh, OK, so fiction. I, it just occurred to me as you were saying that you were reading with your kids. My wife and I have often tried uh, many times to read books aloud to our kids. Our kids are of different ages. One is 15 and a half. One's almost 14 and one's just turned 11. They're varying ages. Their interests are a little bit different. About two years ago, and it might have been the year of COVID, but I think it was just, I think it was 2021. No, it was, it was 2020. I just think, wow, it's been that, that long. We read a book that was meant to be read. It was, it's kind of a kid's level adventure book that takes place in the last few weeks of the time of Jesus before his crucifixion. And it's written as a sort of historical fiction well, I don't even say it's historical fiction. It's just a kid's adventure book. And it's called Amon's Adventures, A-M-O-N, Amon's Adventures. And it's, I mean, it's a fairly long book. I mean, I'm guessing it's at least as long as one of the Chronicles of Narnia books, if not a little longer. But you're supposed to read it over Lent. I don't know if there's exactly 40 chapters or how, how it works out mathematically. But you're reading this boy who is 13, who is a student of Gamaliel, 
and who is friends with the Rabbi Saul of Tarsus. Oh, okay. And they're very, very, very light characters in the book. The main characters are just the main characters. So, like, literally, you could read this and not know anything about Jesus, per se. And you, there's a storyline there. So it doesn't involve Gamaliel or Saul doing a whole... Well, I, I don't want to spoil too much. But it doesn't involve them so heavily that it's, like, sort of about those people that we know of from actual history. Yeah. It is about this fictional character whose whose dad is accused of stealing from the temple. So Caiaphas is, of course, involved. There's some Roman soldiers involved, Pontius Pilate's involved. So these characters actually exist. It's really intriguing to me. The first time we read it, my wife was reading it and I'm listening to it as the, you know, as she's reading aloud to the kids and to all of us. It was really interesting to me because you wonder how the author interprets certain pieces of what the crucifixion experience was like or or not the crucifixion experience but like the, the passion week and what was the you know where was the upper room and what was it like and what did jesus say and how did jesus respond to these things and so you know jesus features in the book of course but amon is very much like the messiah couldn't be jesus because x y and z and so i mean you can probably guess where the story leads but it, it was such a great book to read aloud because it was told there were lots of really good cliffhangers. There was a little bit of an anachronistic, but kind of in a fun way of um, Amon was sort of an inventor. And so there were just sort of ways in which the author presented him creating uh, inventions. And I don't even know if these things actually existed. So maybe there's a little <laughs> bit of, I, I actually don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm thinking it was too anachronistic and it was just perfectly fine. But it was just, it was such an, a, a fun adventure story to read over Lent. But by the time you are reading, if you're reading every day, by the time you get to Good Friday, you're reading about the things that happened on the day that Jesus crucified. And so it just kind of times really, really well as a Lenten story to read. My only complaint about the book is that it's actually like physically, we talk about physical books. It's actually physically like the size of a normal textbook, like in its like width oh, and yeah. height. But the thickness is really thin. And I'm like, why didn't they just make this like a five by seven inch book like <laughs> well i don't understand and it's not like there's like worksheets or anything like that and so it kind of bothers me that that's the the dimensions of the book but outside of that it was right it's just fantastic yeah uh, so cool. that's 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 a fiction book that we've been reading so yeah hello everyone it's doug from the libertarian christian podcast you might notice already that this recording sounds quite a bit different from usual in fact it probably sounds pretty crappy well i'm doing this to show you something pretty amazing as you might know, the guys over at Podsworth Media have been producing my show for several years, quite a while, hundreds of episodes, and now they have a brand new online app for taking rough recordings like this one and making them sound a whole lot cleaner and a lot more listenable in just a few easy clicks. So here are some of the core features. They remove background noise. It reduces plosives, which is really handy for me because I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video. I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video because pop filters look terrible when you're on camera. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly and then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly and then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. How do you use it? It's easy. You go to podsworth.com, you click get started. And because you're a listener to one of the Libertarian Christian Institute's podcasts, you can get 
50% off your first order by entering the promo code LCI50. That's LCI50, and you will get 50% off your first order. If you are doing anything like a podcast, a video, a sermon, an audiobook, anything that's spoken word, you want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished. You want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished. Well, I see you, you have some adult fiction here. You know, I'm sure the audience doesn't know this. We're very uh, good planners, both you and I are, Doug. We had <laughs> actually a list of books we want to talk about. And you have you, you read a lot of fiction, and you read a lot of really cool fiction books, too. So you have a list of a couple of books here. <laughs> what are some of the ones that stick out to you? Yeah, I'll briefly go over them. So I read at the end of last year, uh, in the dead of winter, The Memoirs of Stockholm Sven by Nathaniel Ian Miller. It's 100% fiction. It is about a a young man from Stockholm who decides to go live in Svalbard, which if you don't know is even closer to the North Pole than Iceland is. This takes place in the 1920s and he goes to live alone. He becomes a trapper and it's very call of the wild ish in that kind of sort of vein of like just a single man is trying to survive in the wilderness and he has a dog and there are other people in it. In fact, I actually was a little surprised at how many more people there were in the book characters, I should say, than the back cover describe. Like, I literally thought this was going to be like, just like this solo hermit kind of person, you know, in the story. And it wasn't. It was it was a great little adventure book. I wouldn't call it an adventure book. It was a great book. There's a lot of humor in it. I read a book. I actually looked it up and I was, this might be breaking the uh, limit of what I asked you to provide. But uh, back in 2021, I read a book by James Mishner called Space. It is a novel, and this would also qualify as you're above 600 pages. It's about 950 pages, and it's also like a five by seven book. So this isn't like you oh, know, yeah. trade paperback, right? So this is like a 1300 page trade paperback size book. And James Mishner, I mean, all he writes is really long books. I've got three of them on my shelf. I haven't read the other two yet, but I got them at a discount store, so I eventually will. It is a fictional account of the space program the NASA space program, and it's all fictional. And it's, I mean, it's obviously based, got a few characters in there that who are accurate. I mean, he didn't make up who landed on the moon. first. <laughs> I mean, there's that kind of thing, but it's historical fiction in the one sense. Well, it's, I, I, I must not use that word too. I can't use that word too many times here. It's not historical fiction, but it takes place within that kind of history, right? Yeah. But it starts back in World War II and the fighter pilots and what they had to deal with in training and also gives you a sense of how the space program was born out of the post-World War II era and the Cold War, how it made that happen. And so the the progression of the story, and it's very epic in its sort of scope because there's a lot of characters. There's about three or four main, actually there's four main storylines that eventually intertwine a little bit more. And this was written in 1981. That's cool. And so he's projecting into what is now our past, but into into the future, the kinds of things that the space program would would become, how they would, you know, there's like the last chapter is the moons of Jupiter. And I'm like, oh, wow, they're going to like land on Jupiter in this later in this book. No, it's not what that's about. It's about what the vision for space travel is going to be. And it's very much rooted in the abilities of people in the 1970s, 1980s. I guess he'd be writing, writing this in the 70s. We're able to imagine was possible for space flight and for space travel. There's also a really interesting sort of side story. One of the one of the main characters' wives gets caught up in what you can sort of now look back at like as a parody of Scientology um, <laughs> and of like religious fanaticism. 
which is really it's it's kind of this like really cool like side story to it but um yeah anyway it's just it's just really it's wholesome as far as i know there's not a lot of profanity in it if if any that i can remember and it's pretty clean in that regard and in other ways and so it was just a it was a great story yeah it sounds like a good one and one again a lot of libertarian adjacent ideas in that one too with the space race and everything like that yeah yeah there would be a lot of food for thought and topics of conversation if you had like a book study on it. Although I don't know if I'd recommend this for a book study. You have to be real serious. I think Alex, you and I would be the only ones at that book club. <laughs> Maybe we get one or two of the other guys at LCI to, uh, to, to join us on that one. Oh man. Yeah. So what are some books for you that have left an impact recently or even not so recently? Yeah, so there there have been a couple that have been really like important to me. I've done a podcast episode on a couple of these. I read back in, I guess the, it was like December, maybe November, an older book called The Perils of Modernizing Jesus by a scholar named Henry Cadbury. And the book was written in 1937. But Henry Cadbury was a Quaker New Testament scholar. And so he's anti-war. And he actually lost a teaching position in 1918. I guess Woodrow Wilson, who is the worst president in American history, mm. he passed uh, this bill called the Selective Service Act, which required people that were participating in non Nonviolent churches to join the military for World War One, and they would serve in non-combatant roles, but they still had to participate. Henry Cadbury like spoke out against that pretty dramatically. I think published some articles on it. And he wound up losing his position over that, so he's kind of an anti-war hero. But he has this really incredible book called The Peril of Modernizing Jesus, and basically what he does in that book is he looks at the state of New Testament scholarship during the 1920s and the 1930s. And at that time, it was dominated by liberal Protestantism. And so these are Protestants that like Jesus being, you know, kind of the social advocate and things like that. And he follows up on ideas that were outlined in another book written by Albert Schweitzer just about 20 years before he wrote The Perils, or 30 years before he wrote The Perils of Modernizing Jesus. And in Albert Schweitzer's book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus, he comes to the conclusion that essentially all of these scholarly reconstructions of the historical Jesus, that is like the Jesus that we can know as a historian would know any other ancient figure using the sources that we have, that all of these scholarly reproductions of the historical Jesus are just a reflection of the historians that are doing the reproducing, the historians that are doing the interpreting, no. um, which is a really brilliant insight. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> and so what he does is he just talks about how there are all these gaps in our historical knowledge of Jesus. Now, we know enough about Jesus I, I, to have a rock solid faith, but as a historical figure, there are gaps in his life and that oftentimes scholars fill those gaps with content that is congenial to their own social and political context. And so they wind up turning Jesus into a modern man. And he's got a, a bunch of great one-liners in this book. But since his main critique is liberal Protestantism, he's got this line where he says that, you know, the liberal Protestants of his day, they didn't think that we could actually know hardly anything about the historical Jesus from the sources that we have, except that he would support every single progressive policy position uh, <laughs> that was available during the progressive era in the United States. So very insightful book. Uh, and, and a warning for all of us to not try to project our own wishes and our own biases back yeah. into the historical Jesus, because if we do that, then we wind up just making Jesus, you know, a man just like us. And, and we, we really lose who he is as a historical figure. It's a very, very, very important book for me. Yeah. Well, I think you and I both have written articles along the lines of why we shouldn't call Jesus a libertarian. Yeah. And so yeah. I think it was probably influenced by that way of thinking as well. It's like, eh, I don't think we could do that. 
Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's absolutely correct. And again, this is for me. I, you know, we, I, last time I was on your show, we talked about how I'm like an epistemological postmodernist. And I have, you know, kind of, I, I really do believe that knowledge is produced by the language that we use to describe, you know, the reference that we are, where we're trying to conceptualize and all of that stuff. And so books like, and I think there are a lot of New Testament scholars, and I talked about Schweitzer, but I think almost every New Testament scholar would realize that there's a danger in being anachronistic. But I think Henry Cadbury's assessment and that book is the best, concise, exhaustive examination of that problem that's available. And uh, if you're a listener and you want to get a copy of the book, I don't, I don't think it's in print and there are not many on Amazon. So you might want to go get one as quickly as possible so that you can actually read it. Because I'm not sure what library yeah. would have that book just available for you to read. Yeah. Okay. So... Yeah, th- that one was really good. There, there's another really good one I, I have to rep here too. It's called The Artist, the Philosopher, and the Warrior by Paul Strathern is the name of the historian. And I, I teach the Middle Ages. And so for a couple of years, I tried uh, at the beginning of every single unit, I teach nine units a year at school. I tried to read a book that uh, had to do with the content that I was teaching during the course of that unit. So this year, it's I've been a little off because I've been reading more biblical studies and more um, economics this year. And so I haven't quite been on that schedule this school year. But I was teaching my unit on the Renaissance and the Reformation. And I had had this book for a couple of months on my shelf. And it's a triple biography of three very famous Renaissance figures. It's uh, Niccolo Machiavelli, Leonardo da Vinci, and Cesare Borgia. And it's just this really beautiful story about how the three lives of these Renaissance figures intersected in central Italy right around the year 1500. And there's some really interesting insights for both libertarians and for Christians because it talks about the development of, you know, there's all these wars going on and Cesare Borgia was kind of this warlord. His father was the Pope, which tells you something about the uh, integrity of the papacy during that time. But he's like this warlord in Italy and Machiavelli is kind of like his right hand man. And so when Machiavelli writes The Prince, which is really the first kind of modern political philosophy, he's writing it based on his experiences with this warlord. And so a lot of his political advice and the political advice that is at the foundation of the Enlightenment goes back to all of these experiences that he had with this warlord. So it just kind of gets you thinking about the way that we think, how the way that we think about politics and the best way to organize society are often very much historically contingent upon the world in which we live. And then also it just shows, you know, the total depravity of the papacy and the leadership of the Catholic Church. And again, this takes place right around the year 1500 is kind of the central year. So, you know, 17 years before Martin Luther visits Rome and decides that that entire place is corrupt and immoral and everything like that. It's very, very brilliant work of history. It takes about 50 pages to really get going. But after that, it's an excellent read. I'd highly recommend it to anybody who's interested in the Renaissance and then, you know, kind of the foundations of modern political theory and then also the foundations of the Reformation too. Great stuff in that book. All right. Well, we've used, we've used up a lot of our time here talking about how we read and we've given a little (laughs) bit of time to what we are reading. So what is on your shelf now that hopefully in another three to four months, we will be back here talking about? Okay, I got a bunch of them, as I know you do too, Doug. And I got to ask you a couple of questions about some of the books that you have on your list here before we get out of here. But during Lent, I decided that I was only going to read biblical studies as one of the things that I gave up. So now that Lent is over, the next two books that I have up on my list are The Case Against the Fed by Murray Rothbard. I've been wanting to read this one for a long time, and I'm starting to come to an appreciation of just how central the Federal Reserve is to almost all of the illnesses that we have in our society today with interest rates and targeted inflation and all 
all of that stuff. So I'm really excited to read that. And then there's another book called Ideology and Insanity by a libertarian philosopher named Thomas Saws. And in that book, he tries to present the idea that the clinical definition of insanity is a cultural artifact that was essentially created in order for certain people in society to exercise power over other people. And so it's it's kind of like a critical and a very Michelle Foucault-oriented kind of a critical yeah. examination of the language that we have developed to talk about people's mental states and then the way that certain power centers in society use the language of insanity to marginalize and oppress other people. So that should be a really, really interesting book and kind of uh, kind of something that I've thought about before, especially as I've been reading through Foucault. But I see with yours on your uh, what's on your shelf now, you got you got some really interesting ones there. I wanted to go back just a little bit before on the books that left an impact for you. You said that you read The White Pill by Michael Malice, and I haven't read that one yet. Yeah, but I've, I've heard really good things about it. What was your what was your take from that book? Yeah. So I would love to get Michael Malice on the show to talk about it. I will say that if you look up Michael Malice on YouTube and you listen to podcasts where he just does audio podcasts, you will get a gist of the book. However, I listened, this is one of the two books that I mentioned earlier where I listened to it and then I bought the hard copy. So the hard copy is actually sitting on my shelf to read because it just arrived this past week. But I listened to the audiobook and Malice reads it and it is agonizing. And I don't say that to say, oh, you shouldn't read it but because I think you should read it. I know that we all give lip service as libertarians to how bad communism was and that it was truly, really existing communism, right? Like real communism has been tried and we know that it was bad and we know that capitalism, free markets, freedom, whatever you want to call it, that won in terms of like what provided human flourishing. But I think there is something incredibly... I don't know what the word is. It, it's, it's palatable to hear or to read the narratives and stories of people who were affected under the Soviet Union during the Russian Revolution, during Stalin's era, during all of those decades that our parents and we grew up in. Maybe not you and me. We're a little on the younger side for that. I mean, I re sort of remember when the fall of communism happened, but it was I was young. Yeah, I was too, so I don't remember any others. <laughs> but we know from stories soon after what it, what it used to be like and what it's like better now, you know, because Ukraine is now, you know, freer than they were under the Soviet era in the 90s, right? And a lot of, a lot of evangelical churches were very much sending missionaries there, so we are hearing good reports of, you know, what freedom has done for their people. But, but to read Malice's reporting or uh, accounts it's sometimes brutal. And, and other times I would say the whole thing is just like a slog to read through. It's not. But it is very much like, oh my gosh, I did not know how ridiculously terrible this was and how the experiences of the people under the thumb of communism or the boot of communism, it was another world. And some of the stories that are in there, and it's not just a collection of stories. I don't want to undersell what it is. Because anybody listening to what I'm saying here is going to say, oh, well, I don't really need to read a bunch of, you know, short stories or essays or whatever about what it was like under the Soviet Union. I know it was bad. But the book isn't intended for you to just, like, feel bad about it. It has a purpose. He's not manipulating you in any way, I don't think. But you get a better sense of not only what it was like, but how it fell. And how, I want to say quickly, it wasn't quickly and it wasn't necessarily easily 
but the circumstances under which communism fell were not and would not have been very predictable. And we can, we can say Reagan was a big deal, and he was, and Thatcher was a big deal, and she was. They played a major role in the 80s. But there were a lot of other things that happened that would give people like us who think that right now, after what we just went through with the COVID regime, as it were, we have reason to hope. And it's not just like, oh, we don't have it as bad as they did, so we should just be a little bit less sour about our experiences. That's not the point of the white pill. But in any case, that's why it left an impact. I didn't know how bad it was. I also was still able to carry hope by the end of the book. And so that's, that's books that left an impact. That's one of them. Yeah, that sounds like a really good one. So what do you got coming up next? Well, I have that book to read. I want to read it and sort of take it in <laughs> a little bit more. You think I'm a glutton for punishment, I suppose. But no, it was actually a very good book, The White Pill by Michael Malice. So another one on my shelf is The Individualist by Matt Zwolinski and John Tomasi, who were for a while part of the Bleeding Heart Libertarians movement that's been sort of disbanded as a website, although it's still there. They published a book about the intellectual history of libertarianism, which I've only read the introduction in a little bit, so it's not really on my shelf. It's really more on my nightstand. <laughs> a book that I've been really wanting to get around to is Fossil Future by Alex Epstein. I, I have the audiobook that I'm slowly listening to. I actually have the physical copy. I'm pretty sure I got a copy from the publisher on that one, but I, I can't remember. Uh, and Alex has agreed to come on at some point, but it's just been kind of one of those, like, yeah, I'm pretty busy kind of persons. Right. <laughs> um, and Epstein is insanely busy. He is doing all kinds of great work out there. The Viking Heart by Arthur Herman that is uh, literally about the Vikings and these, I forget what the subtitle is, but it, 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 it had to do with like the spirit of America or something, oh, that's something cool. like that. Or uh, I forget the, man, I wish I knew the subtitle off the top of my head because I only wrote down the title here, but it, it's really good. I started reading it. I'm about a hundred pages in and it's just been one of those like, oh, I have to read these other things for the podcast. And I just haven't gotten back into the, to the Arthur Herman book. And then uh, last year at Freedom Fest, I met Nick Gillespie for the first time and had a conversation with him, and he suggested that I read Roger Williams and the Creation of the American Soul by John Barry, which was published in around, I think, in 2011. And it's basically a book on religious freedom and the American culture of religious freedom. And so that I've actually started and uh, will probably get back into this week now that I've finished a few books based on episodes I'm about to record. And so that that would be a really great book to read. And another one that <laughs> I just reminded of earlier is Biblical Critical Theory by Christopher Watkins. <laughs> I ordered it, started reading it. It's really, really good. It's not about critical race theory at all. Oh, it's, it's not. It's okay. About, no, it's not. It. I mean, it's basically, it, it plays off of that because critical theory, as you know, is about how do we have a, a sort of all-encompassing vision of what, how to interpret society, basically. And so he is, it's basically a, um, I wouldn't say a systematic, uh, shoot, I don't have it in front of me because I can't describe it, but it's basically like, how do we read the Bible critically in a good way, critically, not in a critical theory way, critically, and how do we like piece all these things together? So it's not quite systematic theology. It's not quite biblical theology. I'm going to undersell it because I literally just thought about it about five minutes ago, <laughs> uh, but it is on my shelf and one that I want to continue reading because it is really good. And there's been a lot of good things that people have said a lot of good things about it, but it is not about critical theory. Okay, Amazon keeps on recommending that one to me. <laughs> I, I, know, haven't, I, I haven't clicked on it to look at it yet. That's, and so, so I, I guess that makes sense. Don't judge a book by its title. 
<laughs> right, right. I do feel like that's a little misleading. Uh, well, but maybe it's just misleading for people like it you and me. It isn't really. Yeah. I think it's just because the association of the words critical and theory and biblical critical theory, it's like, well, oh, because Tim Keller wrote the foreword and Tim Keller has sort of said some lefty type things lately, lately in the last few years, right? And so people think, oh, well, Tim Keller wrote this. It says critical theory on the cover. It must be one of those woke books. It's not. Oh, that's good. That's good. Wow, man. Well, that should be an interesting read. Yeah, well, I think we've uh, exhausted our audience with all the things they need to read with us. I would uh, invite our audience to email us, podcast at libertarianchristians.com, and tell us what you're reading. Tell us what you think we should read. Or if you've heard us say we're about to read these books and you could say that it's going to be a waste of our time, maybe you could tell us (laughs) that too. I don't know. But in any case, we will hopefully be back here talking about the same topic in a few months. Alex, thanks for joining me. Hey, Doug, this has been a lot of fun, man. I appreciate it. Yep, same here. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.